Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the July 28th, 21 QPSC. Council, can we go to roll call, please? Yes. Uh, Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Bouquet? Here. Trustee Dong? Trustee Dong's absent. Uh, Trustee Esteen? Trustee Esteen is absent. Uh, Trustee Friedman? Here. And Trustee Jensen? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you, Council. Well, that will move into the public comment section. Remember, uh, the agenda has full and clear instructions about how to submit for comment. The clerk of the board is absent this night, this evening, so I'll give the public opportunity right now uh, with a hand raise or a, or, a, or a commentary that you'd like to have public comment uh, as we talk about in the full board, this board fully um, uh, engages with public comment. We uh, All feedback is a gift, so we're looking for any that have any. Council, if you'll scan the room with me, I don't, I don't currently see anyone raising their hand for public comment. I'll give them every, I'll give this audience maybe another 10 seconds, scanning the room. All righty, thank you audience. So um, with that, we'll go right into item A, uh, uh, the chair's report, a report and discussion. Uh, uh, as this audience knows, we uh, select articles. Uh, there are three articles here uh, for this evening, um, probably a total of about eight pages of reading. I'd like to make a few comments on each of these articles and then open it up for discussion amongst trustees, uh, uh, med staff leaders, or our executive team. Um, uh, the first article is entitled, How to Measure the Value of Virtual Care. I, I think it, uh, it's obvious to everyone that, that, that COVID has helped to re, reframe how we consider uh, the execution of healthcare and virtual care being a component of that. I know this has actually been a piece of our discussion about what our strategy is gonna be moving forward. So I thought, I thought this was a very good article uh, which came out of the Harvard Business Review. I just wanna read a quote here and then open it up for uh, comments. The existing body of evidence for telehealth is narrowly focused on short-term measures of the financial value of virtual health. There's much opportunity to now gather details on broader benefits, such as improvements in access to care, clinical outcomes, the impact on the patient and the clinician experience, the potential for operational efficiencies, and the impact on health equity. These benefits will also vary based on a wide range of factors that affect value and outcomes, such as payment models, virtual care modalities, or the clinical use case. What this group did, interestingly, was they developed a comprehensive framework, a balanced scorecard, if you will, to help measure the value of virtual care. And they, they included five environmental variables, and, and what they are isn't important, but it's a structured approach to decision-making, which I am always a big fan of, which I think many people are. Their five environmental variables were the practice type, the payment arrangement, the patient population, the clinical use case, and the virtual care modality. They also included six value, so-called value streams in, the, in their balanced scorecard. Those include clinical outcomes, quality and safety, access to care, patient and family experience, the clinician experience, which sometimes is not not considered, the financial and operational impact, and of course, health equity, which is something that we're big fans of. 
So, so I'll stop and I'll make any comments on this. I know that, that our executive uh, leadership is actually engaging this, di this dialogue and, and getting it kickstarted on what is gonna be our strategy um, for, for, for this health system. And I, I'd argue that telehealth is, is, is a tactic under the strategy, but I think an important one. So I'll open this up for any dialogue from our executives, our med staff leaders, or our trustees, if any, no obligation. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I, I was surprised at how that it was less than 1% pre-COVID, that virtual, and that it was so removed from the actual continuum of care um that 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 happened more episodically if people needed urgent care or other kind of calling a nurse line or something if they had something and that the contact was usually with somebody who was not the primary care yeah. physician so i think the some of the new interdependencies that have come up because of covid that really have a space to be like we creatively used in uh, in many different ways. So uh, this opportunity of some things that have come up that even if we are on the other side, whenever that is, that might be, it's a long road, but it needs to continue. Yes, ma'am. Many many I, thought leaders have asserted that, that COVID is, is, is an accelerator for where we were trying to get in, in a catalyst. Um, I see our uh, CEO and our COO. I'll go with uh, Mr. Jackson, then Mr. Frasky. Good evening, sirs. Very good. Thank you, uh, Chair Bouquet, and thank you to the trustees. I, I really appreciated that this was one of the readings offered. Um, this reminds me of the saying, you know, the difficult we do immediately and the impossible takes a little longer. Um, at the beginning of COVID, virtual medicine was really a nominal part at best of our offerings as the Alameda Health System, and it quickly became integral to our ability to do this work. Um, I think it's pretty clear that it's here to stay. It will continue to, we will be a hybrid operation. Um, I'm just terribly impressed. Um, Dr. Jenny Cohen, who left the organization not long ago, but Jenny Cohen was with me talking to legislators about how important virtual medicine and the ability to do telemedicine was in her ability to connect with patients who she'd been really unable to connect with prior to really going full tilt into the telemedicine sphere. So I'm confident that this is our, our new reality. This won't change after COVID has been tamed and we will tame COVID. Um, but I see this as our, as our, new, our new reality. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Mr. Frasky, then Dr. Jamaluddin. Yeah, thank you, Trustee Bouquet. I agree with everything James said. And one of the dynamics the article didn't mention is the um, the reduction of healthcare expenses longitudinally over the life of a patient. <clears throat> if we can reach more of our patients now, if we can bump our 50%, we can reach up to 75% or something greater, even if we don't get paid for it. Over time, over a patient's lifetime, the healthcare expenses in totality are reduced. And by, by way of preventing hospital admissions and more acute care down the line. So um, it's really incumbent upon us to figure out how we can reach everybody regardless of how the value of the payment, frankly. We're here to serve all. Yes, sir. Thank you. Good words. Dr. J. 
uh, Trustee Bouquet, uh, again, thank you for bringing this uh, very important topic, especially before uh, the strategic planning or the strategic planning process. Uh, I just want to share uh, what we have learned here in Alameda Health System from uh, telehealth, and those are like, uh, you know, our facts. Uh, our no-show rates uh, to our clinic, even when we started opening up, is at its lowest. Our uh, budgeted uh, visits in ambulatory care has gone 5% above. Uh, at the personal level, I have patients who I have called and they run out of medication or about to run out of medications. We were able to send them their medications to their home. I'm talking about COPD and asthma patients. Uh, when I see patients, sometimes I haven't seen for two or three visits on televisits and they come to my clinic, I see, oh my God, did I miss much by just doing the televisits? You know, honestly, not that much as a specialist. I can see their labs, I can see their chest x-ray, I can talk, I can hear their voice on the phone. So that's number one. Number two is uh, in our uh, PES, you know, our volume has been at its lowest, and this is because of the implementation of telepsychiatry in our emergency uh, rooms and uh, the reversal of 5150 via telepsychiatry. So our overcrowding in the PES uh, has, has really improved. And, of course, we have done other uh, measures to, to decrease overcrowding in uh, John George PES, you know, by improving the average length of stay and other things, but telepsychiatry has helped. Uh, we have implemented teleneurology at uh, Alameda Hospital and uh, at San Leandro in a very effective way. And, uh, you know, as it relates to the cost, indeed, we are not going to be able to afford having high-level specialists in, in throughout the system or throughout the nation. And this is a platform that really needs to be addressed. It is disruptive and it needs thoughtfulness. It needs regulatory to catch up. It needs payers to catch up. So I agree with you. Thank you. Thank you. Good words, Dr. Jay. Trustee Friedman, sir. Yeah. Um, thank you also for the article, and I um, appreciate the comments of those who've talked before, so I won't repeat their points. But one thing that uh, this brings up is the need for bridging the digital divide. I was recently at an event for Oakland Undivided where they were able during the pandemic to get $40 million to make sure every child and uh, every uh, student in Oakland had uh, not just a computer but also a Wi-Fi uh, broadband connection and training. So I don't know <laughs> what our plans are for training our patients or making sure they have access to technology that they're going to need to participate in telemedicine going forward. And uh, also, I'm sure staff has had to have a lot of training in order to be effective at telemedicine. Yes, sir. Or virtual medicine, I should say. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Trustee Friedman. Thank you, everyone. And that was Article 1. There were two subsequent articles which were attached at here. And these were related to, uh, I think, the topic du jour, uh, vaccination for COVID-19. These both came from New York Times. One was dated on July 20th and July 21st, just a week ago. Uh, one entitled New York to require vaccination or weekly testing for city healthcare workers. And the other, more hospitals impose vaccine mandates for employees. These were sort of cutting edge at the time, and they're already dated right now. As everyone knows, um, two days ago, Governor Newsom 
announced his quote vaccine verification program that effectively required all state employees as well as all hospital and healthcare facility workers, public and private, to require them to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination. And those who were unable or unwilling to get the vaccine will be required to COVID test at least once per week, possibly twice a week. Compliance uh, per uh, the, the governor's program is expected by August 23rd, 2021. I know this has been a topic of discussion. I'm gonna again ask our uh, uh, three executive leaders to make a brief comment, but a couple of fast facts to underlie this. As of today's COVID data, July 28th, there are 27 COVID positive patients in hospital, six in the ICU and two on the vent. One month ago today, June 28th, 2021, zero COVID patients in the hospital. So, so the trends I think are, are obvious to anyone who watches any news um, on whatever side of the spectrum is that, that the COVID rates are going up. So I'll, 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 I'll defer comment to uh, uh, our CEO, then our COO, and then our CMO, and then any trustee comments on this, but uh, uh, um, something's show it, showing its face again to us. Um, yes. Sir. Yes. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. And um, again, thank you for sharing this. And as you said, this is evolving so quickly that it becomes dated in just a matter of days. But the reality is that we have been anticipating the need to um, prepare for the fourth wave for some time. And so there's a lot of work that has been happening to make sure that we were ready to increase our capacities as needed across the system to deal with an influx of COVID positive patients. Similarly, we've been prepping for moving to mandatory vaccinations for staff. Um, we have not implemented that yet. We are actively in conversations with our labor partners about how we would implement such a mandatory um, requirement. But um, please let me be clear, we will be moving to mandatory vaccinations. And so it's really just a matter of implementation. I, I will stop there. Mark has been more active involved in terms of the operationalization of these issues. So I'm gonna turn to him and let him provide more specifics. Yeah, I think, uh, thank you, James. And I think at uh, what it feels like when our rock meeting gets together is that we're starting to unravel some of the progress we had made in terms of visitation and masking etc which is applicable and good but um i can tell you the the anxiety it creates in our staff in terms of thinking oh we're going back to the ways things were in terms of the big influx of patients and having to manage all of that. Um, it, it's, it's, we're seeing a little bump of, of ill time in our staff right now. And, um, you know, one of the things we need to think about as an organization is how we, how we manage and, and message um, all of the work that may be coming to us in the future, maybe not. And, the impact that can have on our staff, given what everybody has gone through in the past. So those would be my, my only comments about it. Thank you, Mr. Fransky. Dr. Jay, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bouquet. Uh, so uh, the governor order uh, and mandating the vaccine, you know, are two very 
complementary things. So uh, many organizations, or actually countries now, have mandated the vaccines. You know, France uh, issued, uh, the president issued an order that uh, all healthcare workers have to be vaccinated, otherwise they will terminate their employment. So did Greece, so did Italy. Uh, so that's that's something that we have to think about as a health system with our stakeholders and partners in, in terms of mandating the vaccine. But what we know so far is that the vaccine is effective and the vaccine is safe. And a lot of what we are observing in the Delta variants is happening and propagated by the people who are not vaccinated on one hand. On the other hand, the relaxation that happened based on the information that we had with the alpha variant is becoming no longer applicable. We have learned that uh, even in breakthrough, uh, people who are vaccinated and they get a mild illness, their viral load with the Delta variant as compared to the alpha variant is 1,000 times more. Uh, it's hard to have mortality data on this because the number of infected people uh, in the unvaccinated group is much higher uh, with the Delta variant. But we know today that the vaccines that are being utilized in the United States protect against these variants and they protect against illnesses and protect against death. So, uh, so that's you know really the very, very important uh, message. Now, on the other hand, us as health system, we are gonna be encumbered with testing uh, testing, uh, we started to do testing on unvaccinated people in our skilled nursing facility, and it is it is a big ordeal. I mean, we have to know who are the people who are not vaccinated, uh, and uh, this knowledge has to remain like with the managers, and then we have to test these people, and then when they are testing positive and they are asymptomatic, we have to pull them out of work. And then we have to uh, download this data to CDPH and, and other entities. So uh, this is going to encumber uh, hospitals and healthcare system with a cost. Uh, I mean, we did some modeling uh, today on the cost. It, it is a large cost. So there will be a California Hospital Association meeting on Friday where you know we have to voice this to the governor with this governor order, though it is important and we understand the safety of our patients, uh, but we have to look at many other factors related to this order. I tried to connect with New York City to learn how they are doing, but I didn't have the time uh, to do that. But we, we have learned a lot from Richard Espinoza. He has been doing it now for, for months into his uh, skilled nursing facilities. Thank you for those comments, Dr. J. Trustees, any comments? Trustee Friedman, sir. Yeah. Um Thank you, Dr. J. Um, it's clearly another unfunded mandate. It's a mandate that, that I fully embrace and support. Consequences fiscally need to be thought of, as you just so well stated. Um, the other thing is that um, I just read a few minutes ago that um, most of the labor unions that represent state workers feel the governor's plan for requiring vaccination on all state workers or at least uh, regular testing and mask wearing is being are supporting it, except for SEIU Local 1000, which is the largest uh, state employees union. And certainly they often go different than our local SEIUs might, but they're complaining and insisting on meet and confer 
and uh, think that the governor has overstepped his bounds. So just a word to the wise as we, uh, you know, work with our uh, represented employees. Thank you, Trustee Friedman. Any other comments from the other trustees? So those are our three articles. Um, I'm not going to close out my chair's minutes, just a chair uh, presentation right now. Um, actually, I'm sorry, I am going to close it out with last comments. And these comments are uh, uh, of thanks and appreciation. Thanks and appreciation. Dr. Jamaluddin has announced uh, to us that he will be resigning from the organization in a few weeks. And um, I, I think people who give service to this place deserve thanks and appreciation. Dr. J came here right around five years ago from New York Health and Hospital, Kings County, uh, you know, a county hospital with a parallel mission to us. And uh, since his time here, he has, what is undoubted is he has worked very hard. I actually heard Gassan, he didn't tell it to me directly, once say that this was the hardest job he's ever had. And I don't challenge that this, this job has been a very challenging job. I know that Dr. J has been a advocate for patient care and I know and appreciate that he has been a practicing, uh, uh, he has practiced and uh, put himself in harm's way in a number of cases. I remember one evening, Gassan, where uh, Subramani and Baden and I were with you at San Leandro Hospital. Do you remember that early on when you were proning that patient? You were, you were right in the mix. And um, yeah, that patient was very, very sick. And you were, you were in there with all your gear and uh, I appreciated that our chief medical officer would go directly into a COVID room and do that. So I want to extend, and I hope everyone else will, and there, there'll probably be you know opportunities here for everybody. I'll, I'll invite people for appreciation and thanks for Dr. Ghassan Jamaladi in service to this organization. So if you'll join me in a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Taft. Thank you for your kind words and thank you everybody. I. Uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, I'm really honored to have spent five years here uh, to serve, uh, you know, the most vulnerable in Alameda County and to be part of the medical staff and part of the executive uh, team here. Uh, you know, I take a lot with me. And uh, I mean, most importantly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really honored, I had very unique moment caring for patients here. I have uh, cared for patients at home on ventilators uh, in my clinic, and uh, I, I have uh, great confidence and faith that this organization, you know, is gonna is gonna thrive and do and do well. We have a fantastic team right now, and uh, we have a very strong mission and very strong values. And the people are just amazing. Thank you for your kind words. Of course, Dr. J. Trustee Banerjee. Uh, um, I wanted to say thank you, Dr. Jamaluddin, for coming to choosing AHS at a very crucial time of our evolution, too. And it's been like such a, a you know, long and winding journey. Even it's, so much has happened in these five years of like, uh, you know, new initiatives, progress, COVID, changing of structures, systems. And uh, the one thing that will really remain with me is that often when folks go into administration, sometimes they don't do the person-to-person -person clinical care too, so that, that, that you 
made sure that that was embedded in the work that you did. So staying close to the work and being an advocate for patients and bringing so much of your stories about like how patient quality was and what our commitment should be to patients like uh, was really valuable to hear from that um, in both in the QPSC room, but also in the full boardroom. So like, thank you for your service. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Thank you for your kind words. Thank you. I think there will be probably more comments coming out of the med staff portion, so I'm going to defer that because I, I know that'll be coming for, for more, more, more for Dr. J. Well, that will we'll close out item A and we'll go to item B. Trustees, the consent agenda is before you. Before entertaining a motion to uh, approve the entirety of the consent agenda, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion? We have items Bravo 1 through Bravo 4, minutes, policies, and procedures for the core, as well as Alameda Hospital, as well as privileging forms. Um, any any of these need to be removed, trustees, for discussion? Uh, I wanted to, I don't know if I want to remove it for, for discussion, but I noted that um, there was a new policy from the med staff, from um, Dr. Pin and... Um, Dr. Bosch, I believe, and I, I, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll pull that and just, I would like to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, about the Jason, I think you're referring to item B3, attending physician coverage for patients admitted at Alameda Hospital. Is that correct? Right. Yes. So, so I, I think that's, per thank you for doing that. I think that's perfectly appropriate. Otherwise, can I entertain a motion from the trust, from any trustee to approve consent agenda B1, B2, and B4? I'll move that we accept the consent agenda B1, B2, B4. Second. Um, uh, council, roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Trustee Dong and Esteen are absent. Uh, the motion carries. Thank you, sir. Um, with that, uh, we will now open the floor for discussion on item Bravo 3, attending physician coverage for patients admitted at Alameda Hospital. Um, Trustee Jensen, if you have specific questions, I believe I saw Dr. Pyun, the chief of staff from Alameda Hospital, in the room. Yes, I'm here. Oh, uh, so Trustee Jensen, have at it, please. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Chair. I wanted to just pull it and hear a little bit more about it because it's um, it, not that it's unusual or, or, um, or there's anything specific, but I just, I think it goes to some of the issues that have been raised by Dr. Pion in the past. And um, especially with regard to transfer pr protocols and with regard to ensuring that, that the patient follow through is there. So I just like to hear a little bit more about how this policy evolved and, and oh. if it, you know, if what the policy is getting to is going is already hopefully being addressed um, and will just be standardized with the policy. Yes. Um, you know, it's been a transition from, you know, you know, more mostly community physician uh, surgeons uh, who are pretty much, you know, you just page them and they, they call back. It was only two different doctors. Very simple. Right. And now, uh, you know, with AHS taking over the surgical surgeons contract there's a lot more surgeons right so it got very a little bit confusing to the nurses i think that there was uh, at least one instance where they couldn't reach the right they were paging the wrong surgeon and it wasn't clear i guess 
to the nurses who was on call or how to use some of them weren't even aware how to use am i on which is like i guess a uh, call schedule so it, I, i'm not really sure but they just put it in a policy like this is how you know it's going to be very clear in the in, in the nursing communication in epic um you know how to reach the surgeon on call if the surgeon who normally takes call has to sign out to someone else he or she will sign it out and, and make sure the nurses know who, who to call uh, on, on those patients. So it'll be so that won't happen again. That was mostly why it happened. I think there's just been you know a lot of transitions, yeah, and uh, it's just different. It's been different um, because of um, you know a, a different uh, you know service uh, group. Dr. Pyun, do you think that this uh, this will actually clarify this issue? And is is has messaging gone throughout? Alameda Hospital about this? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I mean, I'm not in charge of the nurses, so I don't know. I, I believe this is going to go out to the nurses and um, this policy. I think it'll, it'll be also good for the, the the internal medicine doctors on knowing who to page to. Uh, usually we use AmION, and that's usually correct. And But sometimes, I don't know. I mean, it's a little strange because ortho is a little different from the rest of the surgeons. It's usually the surgeon who operates on the patient is always available for that patient, whereas with general surgery, it's, you know, it's a rotating uh, staff. So it's kind of, it, it, got, it gets, sometimes gets confusing for the nurses, I guess. But I think this clarif- will clarify things. It looks like, a, I think, a better, certainly better than it was. So we'll okay. see. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Trustee Jensen, does this discussion meet satisfaction? Um, yes, thank you. That's very helpful. I um, and I understand it's it's really for surgical patients to ensure um, continuity and and establish for all staff, especially for for nursing staff, to establish yeah. the who the um, the providing the care providers are, who the team is. So uh, thank you for for taking that taking charge of that and for um, putting that together. I think anytime. The physicians lead it. I'm supporting it, and I'll move approval of this policy. Excellent. You, you made a motion to approve B3. Is that what I heard, Trustee Jensen? Can I get a second? Second. Uh, council roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Trustee Dong and Estine are absent. The motion carries. Thank you. With that, we close item B and we move into item C. Remember, part of our charter is direct interaction with our med staff leaders. We have three med staff leaders in the room this evening. We have Dr. Idris Afzali from the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Team. We have Dr. Kathy Pyun, who's the Chief of Staff for Alameda Hospital. And we have Dr. Brandon Besh, who's the Vice Chief of Staff uh, sitting in for a uh, chief of staff, chief of staff Irina Williams. Um, let's go with Dr. Fzali. Good, good evening, Dr. Fzali. Good evening, all. Sorry about that. No, no problem. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, our leadership committee for the month of July uh, did not meet because of scheduling conflicts. Uh, we are set to resume uh, on uh, August third. Uh, so we'll have a more thorough update for you then. But I did want to uh, bring a couple of things to your uh, attention, uh, uh, which is uh, both uh, uplifting, uh, but also presenting new challenges uh, going forward. 
the first of which is uh, our ED volumes. Um, they're uh, bouncing back quite a bit. Uh, I've been saying that for a couple of months now, uh, and this month is no different, and, and yet the, the, the climb has been steeper than anticipated. Uh, so in June of this year, we were 25% higher than we were June of, uh, of 2020. Uh, and for July thus far, it's even it's even higher. Month to date, we're uh, about 32% uh, to July of last year. Uh, that's a significant bump considering uh, the uh, uptick in COVID patients as well. Um, there, this presents a couple of new challenges, uh, the primary of which is uh, overcrowding. Uh, as you're all aware, our department uh, at San Leandro is a relatively small department with 13 beds. Uh, so moving uh, large volumes of patients is, is can be very challenging, especially if patients are boarding there for, for some time. So uh, for the next couple of weeks, my primary focus is going to be working with the inpatient team, uh, case management, social workers, uh, and helping to offload ED volume for those patients that we need to move out of the emergency department that have completed their care there. Uh, there's uh, also uh, the transfer issue. Uh, unfortunately, we're in a, we're in a transition period now uh, with, the, with the transfer center, uh, but hoping to meet with the new uh, uh, physician liaison to the transfer center uh, in the coming week. Uh, the uh, other issue uh, with the ED is uh, uh, focus on, on uh, clinician as well as support staff burnout um, with the volumes that we've been seeing. For example, yesterday we hit 99, not, not quite 100, but uh, that's, a, that's a, respectable, a respectable volume to see in the emergency department. Um, but my hope is that we have enough uh, support for staff and uh, make sure that they have enough backup to where they don't feel uh, burned out or uh, exhausted from, from the process. Uh, some of the next steps that I hope to implement uh, will correlate with some of the efforts that are going on concurrently, one of which is the registration process. Uh, I'm hoping to meet with uh, engineering this coming Friday to, to uh, see if we can make some changes to the main triage area and the arrival process uh, to make it a bit more more efficient, uh, as well as uh, leveraging some more technology. I've been talking about tele teleconsults and telemedicine uh, a couple of our meetings in a row. Uh, one of the pilots I'm currently working on is a teletriage. Uh, so when we have a volume of 99 coming through the ED, uh, it's important that workups get started efficiently and early, but not uh, uh, either over or underutilized. Uh, and so one of the ways we can do that and, and allow our providers to be in the main emergency department actually taking care of patients is to have a tele-triage tele process in place. Uh, and this would be similar to a teleconsult, uh, but you know the, the, the triage provider would not necessarily leave the screen uh, and can even be done uh, from home, and I'm actually going to be volunteering to be the teletriage provider uh, during the first two days of the of the pilot. Uh, and the hope is that this will essentially uh, minimize the number of patients left without being seen, uh, start workups uh, right away, and once patients are roomed, uh, have the appropriate workups done and ready for the patients to be dispositioned. Uh, so therefore, uh, addressing the issue with overcrowding as well. Uh, I'm hoping some of these steps can be helpful in uh, addressing uh, further increasing volume that we can anticipate 
Uh, so looking forward to more. Uh, any questions for me? Trustees, any questions of Dr. Afzali? Uh, Dr. Afzali, if you've seen the agenda, you know that the, the main event for this evening is actually a report from the Transfer Center. So I think that's of uh, import to all of us who've been talking about this for quite some time. Um, my comments are on, on, on your tele-triage. Uh, well, that sounds like an innovative kind of uh, uh, thought and uh, you know, something to see if it scales. Can you talk to us about how that process was borne out uh, and how, how it sort of got and how, what would be your plan to scale? Council, uh, uh, please note for uh, the minutes, trustee esteem just joined. Um, so we've actually been talking about it for, for some time. We started talking about it uh, at, the, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic when things just started uh, shaping up uh, about how to protect providers and minimize some of that contact where we were still sort of questioning uh, use of PPE and PPE availability. Uh, and so this was a way to minimize contact but maximize exposure of uh, providers and patients. Uh, but uh, it actually didn't, uh, didn't pan out that way uh, because our volumes dropped and so it, it just be became unnecessary at that point. We actually had a couple of uh, iPads that were donated to the department that uh, just kind of sat there. We're using those iPads for our teleconsult service now, uh, but uh, nonetheless, those iPads are still uh, available for use. Uh, they're iPad Pros, by the way, not just regular iPads. So uh, the, the thought here is we have uh, uh, one physician that's on uh, at all times, uh, but one physician that's on duty for the department. Uh, you know, when you see 99 patients, that's 33 per physician. Uh, in an emergency department, that's quite a bit. In an eight, eight to nine hour shift, that's quite a bit. We have our PAs uh, and uh, at most we have two in the department. Uh, so if one of those is taken off to go to, uh, help with triage and do the uh, rapid medical evaluation process, that takes one provider out of the equation. So if we can use technology to do a remote uh, RME, which is a very uh, sort of a, a quick step, it's not a, it's not a full evaluation, it's more of a sick versus not sick, and what workup needs to be ordered, uh, it, it is time consuming when you have to go out to the front. Uh, and for those of you who have seen our department, you know that the, the physical layout of the department can be challenging. Uh, so if that person can, can stay with the patients that they're taking care of, and this process can be done remotely, uh, we're essentially adding one other provider and improving efficiency. Uh, of course, you know, it's a lot easier in theory and as we talk about it now, but there will be challenges as, as we move through the pilot. Um, I can share more about it as we move. Dr. Abzali, is this pilot uh, just for San Leandro or is it scaling at uh, Highland or, or, and or Alameda? Uh, I think the problem I described with our layout is unique to San Leandro, but I, there's no reason why I can't scale. Uh, I think Highland would be the next logical step. Uh, Alameda's layout is a little easier uh, mm. to manage, uh, but it can be done at any site. Uh, Highland, 
yeah, I, I think can definitely use the process. They have much longer wait times uh, and a higher left without being seen rate uh, as a percentage. I think there, there's definitely benefit from something like this. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. Trustees, any questions or comments for Dr. Afzali from San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee? Just to, to, to support this and not to try to steal from Annette who makes great uh, data sets, but um, in one of the data sets is median time from decision uh, to admit to inpatient bed. And about 50% of admits at San Leandro Hospital uh, get in and in one hour and 31 minutes from decision to admit to inpatient bed. So that's actually a pretty good turnaround, uh, I'd say. And uh, I think they're striving to even do better. Dr. Abzali, thank you for that presentation. Of course. Uh, Dr. Pian, how are you this evening? Fine, thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, just to talk a little bit about what we uh, met exec, uh, we went over some uh, data for the patient ex experience data in April, May, and metrics were above goal or at or above goal. A lot of been, work has been done in this department, but uh, overall uh, looking better, looking good actually. Um, the stroke telenology program is, uh, you know, now maturing a bit. Um, you know, the, overall, it was going well. Um, and then there was one little thing the other week, but where, you know, someone didn't call back. But I think that we're, we're working working things out. Where Dr. Gaines, uh, who is the head of neurology, has been very responsive and, and helping us. Um, we have a brand new pulmonary critical care group basically covering uh, our, our critical care unit. However, we still include... Uh, the old, uh, the old guard, Dr. Lowry and uh, Dr. Deutsch, who also kind of rotate in along with the new new docs, and that has been going very well. I think that people are uh, pretty pleased with that so far. Um, as far as this, uh, that you, I've already talked to you about the attending coverage for sur surgery department. How there's, there's some more clarification. The nurses are going to be told how to, uh, you know, get in touch with the surgeons. There's been issues with that in the past, and. Um, one, one, uh, also, one, one of the uh, physicians, uh, one, several of the physicians have noted that with EPIC, there's a lot of checkboxes um, for the nurses. To, they have to do all this documentation. That's absolutely something that needs to be done, I suppose. And But the problem with that documentation is extremely not helpful to the, to the clinicians who are following the patient. It just looks like a bunch of everything's fine kind of thing. You know, and it doesn't really tell you what's going on with the patient. So we've been asking and begging the nurses to do more of a narrative note separate from this checkbox note to really explain what has happened that shift, you know. And uh, that's very, it's, it's been really needed, sorely needed, especially in the critical care unit where there's so many things that can happen in a single shift. And often we don't know what happened because we look at this checkbox thing and it doesn't tell us anything. So... We've convinced uh, nursing leadership to um, work with uh, work, work with the nurses to do this. It's it's not easy because it's asking the nurses to do double the work, basically double the documentation. And, you know, it didn't go over very well at first, but I think that this is we're working on doing that, and we're actually going to um, try to you know actually monitor and see who's doing it and who's not doing it. And if they're not doing it, um, how can we get them to do it? So that's going to be good for I think quality of care for, um, and communication. Um, I'd like to rank some key concerns. Um, lately, um, we talked about patient transfers, transfers out of Alameda to often the main hospital, uh, Highland, uh, for patients that need a higher level of care. Um, I wanted 
thank Dr. Jamaluddin actually. Um, well, you know, I know he's leaving in a few uh, soon, but just to thank him for the fact that he really does, um, you know, you know, respect or want quality of care. I mean, I had a patient um, again where the two physicians agreed the patient needed to go to Highland, where there were no critical care beds, and Dr. Jamaluddin had. I, I actually contacted him, and he. I, he probably, I don't know what he did, but somehow that patient left <laughs> and went to Highland. So I was really happy about that. Um, and so were the physicians. In addition, I think there's going to be, I think starting in August, an administrator on call, I was told, where whenever this happens, where clinicians are basically being told, yes, this patient needs a Highland level care, needs to go to Highland, but there's no beds, there's no this, there's no that. We sometimes need an administrator to come in and clear, clear the path for that to happen that might mean moving people around a little bit um but and it's, it's not easy not an easy thing to do but we can't have just a single nursing supervisor you know refuse to take a patient um and and that let that determine the fate of a patient we have to um go a little high go above their heads a bit and uh this is going to i hope i'm hoping that this is going to help uh prevent that kind of um thing from happening in the future and um and make it smoother for the, the clinicians so they don't have to bother calling 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 and and calling around and and while they're trying to you know man, manage a crashing patients it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for them to be doing it it should be kind of you know kicked upstairs and uh the person upstairs should be doing a lot of that maneuvering um so um also want to talk a little bit about access to subspecialists um you know that's always been a uh, challenge for Alameda being a small hospital. And there is something what we call e-consults where you would normally in Epic, you would type in a request for a consult for let's say vascular surgery. And then you would uh, send it to the, the vascular clinic and they would, you know, schedule a point appointment for you as a hospitalist or as an ED doc, we don't have any ability to do that right now. So if you think a patient needs a subspecialist and on discharge, uh, right now you have to send them to the urgent care clinic at Highland where the doctor there has that power to put in that consult. So that, that extra step seems to make it very cumbersome. We are working on, I've been on a, a committee, a group that's been meeting, a work group that's been working on this and a meeting with Dr. Uh, uh, Williams uh, about it. And, you know, I think we're coming up with a good plan. I don't want to leave you the whole plan, but I think it's, we're definitely going to have a pilot where we're going to allow for some e-consults to be allowed to be put in by the hospitalist or the ED doctor and uh, in limited circumstances. So I'm, you know, I'm happy about that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to when we, this will be implemented. So I'm, uh, that there is something uh, happening in that department, which I'm happy about. Um, the third thing I wanted to bring up was MRI availability. Um, there's only about two and a half slots a day for high Alameda inpatients at, for MRI, um, Monday through Friday. And that makes it really tough because let's say you have, what if you have five patients that need an MRI that day? Three of them get kicked out, you know? <laughs> or what if you have 10? I don't really know. You know, we have a stroke center. We, we have lots of strokes. Every single stroke patient needs an MRI. Um, MRIs are getting more and more use these days i think it's because there's just such powerful uh technology it's it, it, it's such a great imaging technology that it's it, it can really clarify the diagnosis and, and move the patient along and get us closer to getting the patient better and discharged and getting the right treatments so we you know patients sitting around three to four or five days waiting for an mri we still are having that issue and um 
I, you know, I haven't, I've heard that there's going to be uh, from Judy Sipes. I've gotten some emails from her. I think they're setting up some sort of um, possible pilot plan to, to push maybe at least stroke patients or emergency patients to the, to front, to the front of the queue and perhaps kick out uh, an outpatient on occasion uh, or, or make them wait. Um, and, uh, but that hasn't started yet. So, you know, we're hoping that will happen soon. But I've been told that they are working on something, uh, some kind of help, because this is uh, the way it works now. The way it's working now is not really working uh, for the impatients very well. Uh, so I know that's a lot of information, but if, anyone, if you have any questions, please let me know. And uh, I think that's done. I'm done with my report. Thank you, Dr. Pion. Uh, uh, Trustee Esteen, I think I saw Mr. Frasky's hand up, so I'll have him follow if he wants to after Trustee Esteen. And uh, thank you for that report. And yeah, this is why we're here to hear it. Good evening, Trustee Esteen. Thank you all. I apologize for being late tonight. I might be addressing or actually asking my question of you, Mark, because I did hear the comment about the ICU note taking from the nurses and that that was a difficult transition in the beginning. And I'm curious about how that impacts the change that we're trying to implement around triads and leadership and how um, I agree that more details, especially in a setting, a clinical setting like the ICU uh, is best. But I am curious about how that's going to roll out and if that's uh, something that's going to become standard across the institution. I'm unsure of the ICU note taking. Did I say that incorrectly, uh, Dr. I, oh, it might be for me. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is more of a clinical issue. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to explain that, you know, when document nurses doctor to document what happens in the shift and the way it is now in Epic, there's a click box where you click progressing, progressing, whatever. There's a kind of thing where is patient uh, vital stable? Yes, you know, it's kind of like, it doesn't really tell you much about the patient. It just says everything's fine, you know. But let's say, for example, the patient actually needed three times. We had increased the pressors, the IV medications, three times the amount or tripled the amount of IV fluids that night because the blood pressure was plummeting. There's nothing in that checkbox list about that. So, you you would, you know, all these crazy things could have happened overnight. You would have no idea. Yeah. No. So that's why we've been uh, pushing a lot of the clinicians, uh, physicians that have been pushing for more of a narrative note on top of that. Because that, the, the, that click box note, that click box, I guess, satisfies certain criteria, things that we need. Yeah. I don't know. The, you know, there are hospital rules or whatnot that maybe Jayco wants to see or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, but they don't really help the clinician very much. So okay. Thank yeah, we're asking for, yeah. we're asking for a real narrative note. Hey, what happened? Yeah last night what you know okay in a paragraph you know <laughs> yeah well thank you for the clarification um i'll move i'll move forward with that and speak with our vps of nursing at each site um to help me understand it more and then to understand what we can do to help you with that um i just have to have some discussion this is the first i have heard of it dr pion so let me follow up with them. Um, a couple other comments, um, Dr. Pion. The subspecialty, if I, if you need any help with that, let me know um, as you move forward. I'd be happy to sit in your group and listen and do what I can to help move these things along, okay? Always sure. feel free to call me. Um, the MRI, we are shuffling and triaging um, with staff shortages and one MRI down and still being worked on. 
But I think Judy Seip's been doing a yeoman's job trying to get it all done and make changes um, across the system to accommodate all of our patients. So um, she, I know she's been in close communication with you, Dr. Pian, and yeah. um, certainly if you need to escalate anything to myself, you're welcome to do that as well. Lastly, I just um, regarding triaging of, of patients, I scheduled time today. To, uh, I'm, I'm scheduling a meeting with um, Dr. Efzali, Dr. Josie, um, Dr. Simon, and the three nursing VPs at each site, along with Ryan to give because we really need to look at better how to triage our patients and how to make best use of our community hospitals while at the same time removing the backlog in Highland. Um, the time has come to really think differently about it and look at staffing and what, what those barriers are to doing that, including the hours of operation of our transfer center, et cetera. So um, a lot more to come on that, but um, it is something that's on the radar to get, to get working on. Thank you, Dr. Minister Frasky. Dr. Jamaluddin, I saw your hand was raised. Thank you, thank you, Trustee Bouquet. Uh, just, uh, uh, I don't think, uh, Dr. Pune, you have escalated to me that night, and all I did, I spoke to Teresa Cooper, and she solved the problem. Uh, we had to move somebody to Alameda Hospital who was not critically ill and get your patient who was critically ill. So she, with the nursing leadership, solved that problem. So that's number one. Uh, number two, as it relates to the nurse's note in the critical care setting and in other settings. Uh, I have heard it before, uh, Mark, uh, and uh, I know that uh, your plan, your structure, your restructuring plan will certainly readdress it, but also having uh, the same group right now uh, uh, covering the intensive care unit in all our acute care facilities will help tremendously. You know, I can tell you as an intensivist, my uh, always most important person was a critical care nurse educator to have always process improvement in terms of the documentation. So I could totally appreciate the physicians coming in the morning and uh, having a different nurse and not knowing what has happened during the night. So uh, uh, we, 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 we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, addressed this, I addressed it with Felicia and then we will work with uh, Mr. Frasky and the nursing team with the CNO about having more comprehensive and more uh, PDCA cycle around the quality of the note and the quality of the documentation. Thank you to Dr. Jamaluddin. Uh, that was great words. Trustees, any other comments or questions for Dr. Pune? I have a question for Dr. Pune. Yes, ma'am. Um, in the in past reports, Dr. Pune, you've re reported on um, some delays in getting patients into the ED, and I wonder how that's going from the AMP. <laughs> Transport. Oh, a transport from the ED to... Uh, no, no, the transport, the ambulance transport. Um, I think that may have been you or it may have been um, another Joshi. physician. But. It might have been Dr. Joshi. Uh, if it has something to do with the ED, it's probably Dr. Joshi because she's very uh, ED-focused, has a more hospitalist-focused. Mm -hmm. um, was there a delay in patients coming inside or inside the hot, in, getting into yeah. the an ED bed? Then, no, there was, yes, there was a patient, there was a delay in patients getting off the ambulance into the ED. Oh, yes. Actually, yes, I, yeah, we are working on a plan. Uh, I'm actually going to a lot of meetings regarding this with Dr. Joshi, we're close to Dr. Joshi. 
it, it's multi. It's a multi. It's a. It's not the. It's a definitely difficult difficult problem. We we get boluses of patients. You know sometimes. Uh-huh. And it kind of overwhelms everybody, and um, everyone wants orders immediately on this patient, on these patients that come in all at once. So it's tough. Um, but we're going to we're working on a plan, uh, maybe doing some sort of bridge order thing, where if the patient's stable enough, the the ED doctor could put in the bridge orders, and that can get the patient upstairs sooner. There's different strategies we're trying to do uh, work together, so we can maybe help the uh, hospitalists so that when they get overwhelmed. With four or five, six admissions at once, you know, it's hard to see six patients at once and, and write orders all at once. When you know, it's impo- very, very tough. We don't, we, we don't tend to see. You know, ED doctors will see do- multiple patients all at once, but we don't. We typically will see one one at a time. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a plan. We're working on various things, and there's also nur- the nursing side too. Um, there's a lot of different things that holds up a patient from going upstairs. We're looking at all this from a nursing side, hospital side, uh, ED side. Also, you know, test, tests and stuff like that. Sometimes they'll call us. Well, this, actually, this was, and maybe, I apologize, um, I could get a response from um, from Mark Frasky or from the CEO, from, from James, if he's still on. But yeah. this was an issue where the patients who were in the ambulance were not being led into the emergency room. They were... The um, triage nurses in the ED were telling patients that they had to remain in the am- telling the, the paramedics not to bring patients in for yeah. um, extended periods of time. Yeah, Trustee Jensen, thank you. That was brought up at an Alameda Hospital board meeting, whereas um, on a couple occasions the ambulance waited outside a while before the staff allowed the patient to be moved into the ED. Um, it hasn't happened since, um, per Ronica. And the ED has taken measures to prevent it from happening. And Ronica is going to report back to the Alameda board um, at the next board meeting, Trustee Jensen. Excellent. Thank you. And if I may, uh, uh, Mr. Jackson, then Trustee Asin. Thank you very much, Chair. I'll be brief. I I spoke directly to Joshi after you made me a trustee. And we were able to drill down and... I think we understood what contributed to that. And as Mark said, it's not happened since then. And so I think that we understand how to prevent that on a going forward basis. Excellent. Thank you. Trustee Esteen. Yeah, it, I know we're getting into the weeds on this, but it, that is a quite alarming uh, action. And I'm curious if the triage nurses in the Alameda Hospital are travelers if or if triage nurses have to be staffed because... You know, that feels like you're bordering on an EMTALA violation, and, you know, none of us need that. You know, I just can't understand why that would happen. Or, you know, even a sentinel event could occur if someone's being forced to wait in the in the, in the rig. Yeah, I, I can't speak to the rationale for doing it, um, um, Jennifer, but I, I can tell you it's not best practice. And mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll take care of it. Yeah, it sounds like it's taken care of already, but yeah, it certainly is alarming. Yes. Yeah. So I want to thank you for the dialogue and to help frame part of this discussion. One of our watch metrics, again, is the median time from decision to admit to inpatient bed. Alameda hospitals, 50% of their admits are in a bed within one hour and 21 minutes. That's actually the best in the system. So so again, to, 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 to frame some things. So 
patients, once the, there's been a decision to admit, they're getting to their bed at an hour and 21 minutes, 50% of them. So, uh, so, so impressive data on that. With that, thank you, Dr. Pion, for your report. And we'll end with Dr. Besh from uh, Highland uh, and CORE. Good evening, Dr. Besh. Good evening. Um, uh, so I wanted to start off my report by uh, thanking Gassan Jamaluddin um, for, from the medical staff at AHS and from Highland as well. Um, I, we just a uh, heartfelt thanks. Um, there was an amazing send off at the last MEC um, of numerous chairs, um, numerous chiefs and pe- members of the MEC thanking you and, um, and wishing you the best um, for all the things you've done. Personally, I'm gonna miss our mentorship meetings and talking about articles and stories about patients and family and life. And, uh, and so I'm so grateful for that. So um, thank you so much. Gassan. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Um, and so uh, with committee reports that we had, um, there are department chair search committees. We have a, a handful of department chairs that are leaving or have left. Um, and so ortho, orthopedic surgery and anesthesia, those committees have been announced and approved by the MEC. Um, and then the Department of Medicine Chair Search Committee is also um, moving forward with the job description that was sent out. Um, also, there was a discussion about the Ecological Footprint Committee, um, which I think, as we continue to have fires all over the the Western United, all over the country, I guess at this point, um, uh, that that you know, I think having this team and talking about the things we can do as a system and as a medical staff is really important. So we're we're trying to get that underway again. Um, department of reports. This is this is amazing timing with the the article for ambulatory and pre- preventive medicine, in which they they saw um, you know that they they were seventeen percent over predicted um, budget, which is which is actually a good thing in this report, um, with forty percent um, uh, telehealth services and about twenty five percent in May. And so I think you know this is this is all really timely. Where, where is telehealth? And this is a big portion of the ambulatory report. Um, also, they did an amazing job at ambulatory services, especially the urgent care of delivering a ton of COVID vaccines. So we thank them so much for that because they were really on the front lines of getting the COVID vaccines into our patients. Um, they have a mobile health program reaching out to homelessness and getting a care coordination. And then probably their biggest need is recruitment. So physician actually recruitment um, uh, of getting people into, into jobs and to see our patients um, as they expand. And, and as our ambulatory services continue to grow. Um, so so it, was, it, was a, it was a great report and a lot, of, a lot of exciting and innovative stuff coming in through ambulatory care. Um, I think for key concerns, um, I will start with COVID since that's what we're all thinking about with the numbers kind of hovering 25 to 30 for the last week or so in our, in our system. Um, I, you know, the staff is concerned. I think um, I heard, you know, people talk about burnout. We are burnt out. Um, we are there. We are tired of COVID. I, I'm speaking for all doctors in this country that I am tired of it, especially everybody in the ED and working in the acute care setting. But all, all, all providers and nurses are tired of COVID. And so we're burnt out. And, and it's scary. And we're worried about people not being vaccinated. And we're, we're trying to get people vaccinated. And we're grateful for Mr. Jackson saying that we will get everybody vaccinated in the healthcare setting. So I'm, we're really excited as a medical staff and totally support that, that initiative. Um, and then I think the other things around that are the masks, people calling in sick, 
those things are concerning. So we've sent out communication. We've gone, you know, kind of door to door through the hospital at Highland and at other places about wearing our, our protection, wearing our masks. These, these things we, we, we did, we, we let down our guard in June and um, like, the, like all of our communities. And so we're working on ramping all that up and making sure everyone's staying safe in the hospital and in the clinics. And then the final part of that is that, you know, um, Mr. Fratsky alluded to this, is that, you know, the changes of the ROC visitation is a huge thing um, in our hospital that concerns us. And our patients do better, especially as they're older, um, with, with family at the bedside. So I, I hope that we can continue to figure out a policy that works for our patients. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't disrupt that patient-centeredness and actually improve quality of care by having a family member at the bedside when, they, when it's most needed. Um, as far as uh, workforce recruitment and retention, I will keep that short. I think there's multiple chair searches. I think this is a big, there's a lot of processes going on in EBMG and other divisions and departments around building staffing models and things like that. I, I will kind of just leave it at that for now. Leadership training, we're all super excited to hear about the modules and see the things on implicit bias, professionalism. We need training on crucial conversations. There's more training that's needed for our leaders, especially with all the turnover and changes within our organization and, and on the front line. And so I'm grateful for people coming to talk with us and determining what we need for leadership because this is, this is a, major, a major point for us, right, is that, is that we need to be able to have clear communication in all directions. And I think as a medical staff at AHS, we're recognizing that and just having more discussions about that um, in our MEC meetings. And then I think the thing that keeps us all up at night, some nights, is the governance structure. Where are we going with this? And so there was also discussions about this. Taft gave a, our trustee Bouquet gave a uh, great yeah. presentation. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, gave some information, I think, uh, not this last MEC, but the MEC before, about where are we? And we're, we're kind of stuck in the dark. And what does this mean for our organization? What does it mean for physicians? What does it mean for care from our county? Um, and I think that is an underlying kind of worry, right? Um, these are things that we don't understand completely. Um, and I think we're looking for more information on that. And I think that we kind of got into some governance and some education through a CME we held about the medical staff. And I think people want more of that about our system, about the county. How does this all work? And I think our leaders do want some information around all of those things um, moving forward. Um, so with that, I'll end my report. Thank you, Dr. Besh. That was a nice report. Um, um, appreciated the structure. Trustees, uh, any questions? I see Mr. Frasky's hand up. Trustees, Mr. Frasky, sir. Yes, thank you, uh, Trustee Bouquet. Um, why, why Dr. Besh is there, I just want to thank he and Dr. Castaneda and Dr. Yusuf at each one of our hospitals. We're going through a significant changes surrounding, surrounding length of stay and how we manage our patients in the hospital. And we're just at the beginning of it, and there's going to be a lot more to go. But Dr. Besh and the other physician leaders have been fully engaged um, in helping to make change. And it's just great to see. So, Brandon, I just wanted to publicly thank you and Dr. Yusuf and Dr. Castaneda for taking the lead in that. Well, thank you so much. And we're learning a lot every single day from, from these, these initiatives, that's for sure. Other trustees' comments? Uh, just to touch on uh, Mr. Frassi's comments uh, and, and as relates to average length of state, 
again, previewing a little bit of the dashboard, because I think we're going to have to be moving a little bit uh, quickly and not to undermine the work, the great work that Annette does. One of the elements is uh, of, of highlight for our, our tracking measures is acute med surge observed to expected length of stay. We call that the O to E, uh, observed to expected. For year to date, the system average length of stay is at 1.02. That means the observed time and the expected time are practically right on, on, on pace with one another. This is, this is a different position than we have been historically in our organization. So again, I'm gonna support uh, Mr. Fratsky and his, in, in, uh, in his congrats, uh, but continued charge to, to Dr. Besh and the other hospitals because the hospitals are, are the primary drivers of, of average length of stay for our, for, our, for our hospital patients as they take care of the majority of patients. So thank you uh, again to Dr. Besh. Trustees or uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Besh. I just wanted to say that length of stay, it's, it's, a, it's a number, but these initiatives are also improving patient care and they're improving teamwork at the bedside, which I think, I think is actually more, much more rewarding than talking about just the length of stay number yeah. for, for a lot of us. And so that's, that's what we're focusing on. Agreed. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Besh, for really reiterating that because uh, that is so nuanced when you're talking about like why they are, it's readmission, it's care, it's transition of care, it's like all of that. So uh, yeah, and I wanted to thank Dr. Afsali, Dr. Poon, and um, you all three for bringing these to the fore and uh, you know sometimes we are processing and uh, we don't have ready answers but all of this is being like coded in our minds whether it's the governance structure whether it's the transfer and things to be followed up uh, and to like make sure that like when you bring something to the fore that then there is follow-up and action and things are getting better so again like bring the candor to the room we appreciate you for that. Very much so. Any other comments? Thank you, Dr. Besh. Thank you, Dr. Kuhn. Doctor, thank you, Dr. Zali. With that, we'll close out item C. We'll now enter into item D, which is uh, just to refresh for the trustees in the audience. These used to be individual agenda items, patient safety, then regulatory affairs, and then of course our quality dashboard. We, we know that this is Herculean work that this the, that the quality and compliance department works on. We, 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 we actually, uh, the, this, uh, this is actually in your packet for review. And there's a lot of data and it's a lot of reading. But we ask uh, uh, our chief medical officer um, to sort of give a broad overview. Um, and, and he can touch in with, with, with those who report to him, Darshan Graywall, the System Director of Patient Safety, Nilda Perez, the System Director of Regulatory Affairs, and of course, Annette Johnson, who's the Quality Analytics Director. But we're trying to get a broad view and get in and out of this agenda item roughly in about 10 minutes, if that's okay. Dr. Jamaldeen, if you don't mind, uh, lead us in to, to kind of the broad strokes on quality, uh, sure. uh, safety, and regulatory affairs. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Bouquet. Uh, let me start first uh, to get uh, probably our True North metrics out of the way. Let me see if I can share my screen since we have already uh, talked about it quite a bit. Can you see my screen? Yes, sir. Okay. So uh, I just want to go over uh, our true north metrics. And as you can see, we are mostly in the green. Uh, the childhood adolescent access, this has happened because of COVID and sheltering in, but we are moving 
in the right direction. And this has happened uh, to all other uh, healthcare systems uh, to have the primary access to our children to come for vaccine and uh, and the healthcare assessment. Uh, but the efforts continues and it is moving in the right direction. I do not think we'll be able to uh, reach our target, but uh, there's still some hope to reach our target. As we discussed, our observed to expected length of stay has uh, has improved and it has improved also because of improving in the documentation of, uh, of the uh, illnesses and severity of illnesses of our patients, as well as improvement in uh, our length of stay and effect, uh, trying to affect a very uh, timely discharge of our patients. We still can improve in this regard, but as we said, you know, it's uh, the patient that counts. And if there is one patient who's an outlier and they, we get delay in care, then the quality is affected. Uh, uh, you have mentioned the median time of decision to admit in the ED. We're doing well on this one. And, um, you know, with avoidable days also, we are improving. We were, uh, we were okay this, this month with the avoidable days. Our quick metrics are going in the right direction. I think among all safety net in California, we are rated almost number two, I think, if not number one. We are improving. We have put all these metrics into EPIC right now. And uh, uh, we have a team uh, and their leadership of Nihai Gupta and the physician's leadership that are addressing more than 40 metrics in QIP. Uh, so we are confident that uh, hopefully we will, uh, we will finish the year in a good way. The state has not decided how much they are going to allow us uh, to, to be lenient about this with related to COVID and sheltering in, but we will be among the best performers in the states. Uh, our 30-day readmits is not on targets. However, you know, I uh, I sit on the quality committee of the alliance, and they used our our system as an example about addressing readmit and root causing every readmission. So our team has started to uh, meet again in June at Highland, and that's in Leandro. They have been looking at all readmits and see what we can do to improve uh, or to prevent patients from being readmitted. And we use also external uh, partnerships uh, uh, as well as our complex care management uh, involvement and uh, community health workers to prevent patients from being readmitted. Uh, hospital acquired infection index did very well this month as well. It improved after the COVID our harm index is good. Uh, and I want to uh, take a moment here just to highlight the age caps that also it has moved into the green during this month. And we have seen an improvement because of the utilization of uh, what we call a gift, uh, which is a greeting, introducing what we are for for the patients and thanking the patients. In addition to the activation of my chart in the CG caps, it has improved. Uh, with this, I just want to let the board know that uh, we are very close to uh, recruit a VP of quality. Uh, an offer will be going, if it hasn't gone this afternoon, will be going very shortly to VP of quality. I want to thank the executive team and thank Dr. Bouquet in, uh, in uh, contributing even in some of the interview and giving us feedback that was very uh, very uh, valuable, but we have also made some change uh, with respect to the uh, uh, reporting in some of the directors. So uh, the patient experience will be reporting to nursing. Currently, it is uh, Miss uh, 
Ms. Teresa Cooper, uh, and uh, the director of patient experience will be reporting to her, who is currently Olivia Kleber, and uh, and uh, the environment of care and safety of environment of care, who's uh, Ms. Sandra Williams, will be reporting directly to Mr. Fratsky. So with that, I'm going to stop here and stop sharing and see if you have any question about this, and then we will discuss very briefly the uh, the safety and the regulatory. Thank you, Dr. J. Trustees, any questions about that dashboard? A decent amount of green on that dashboard, which is uh, which is different than before. So uh, nice to see that. It's a good note that... to leave, right, Dr. <laughs> yes, sir. And, and I will note that that that. Uh, so we have previously approved a different set of of, of True North metrics. What, so just to remind the trustees, we are we are sort of, if you will, finishing out uh, the prior fiscal. So that was May. We'll hear the June report. Which will still be the old True North metrics, and then and then you'll you will start to see the new the the ten new True North metrics uh, that we approved, uh, I believe, in uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, so uh, that will be the uh, an upcoming dashboard just to keep you aware. Of. A number of them are the same, but uh, there are a few which are different. That will Dr. be reported, Trustee Bouquet, in uh, in September. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. J, will you talk to us about uh, regulatory affairs sure. and, and uh, that would be great. Yes. So uh, uh, we have provided a written report with respect to regulatory affairs. We have had a number of CDPH visits uh, and uh, um, a, a number of, uh, of issues that have been closed. Uh, so uh, uh, there is no major concern as to the Joint Commission preparedness for Alameda hospitals, uh, the rounding continues and the auditing is, is, uh, is, uh, is being done uh, continuously. I, I feel confident that we are, doing, we are going to do very well in Alameda hospital. With respect to uh, uh, Highland and what we call the core and San Leandro, uh, as you remember, our triennial uh, visit came in February 2020. So it has to happen or end by February 2023. So our uh, season or uh, uh, the Joint Commission can come in February as of February 2022. They came six months earlier. So we are starting our preparation uh, this fall. We will have a mock survey uh, uh, in, in August and we will continue our preparation uh, uh, for for the next survey. Now, of course, we have uh, continuous uh, readiness uh, that is uh, that is occurring as it relates to the Joint Commission. Uh, we have uh, had uh, a survey for our lab. It was uh, unannounced, uh, uh, and uh, and we have uh, had some findings that we have provided a corrective action plan for them and uh, the corrective action plan was was accepted. Uh, in addition, last week uh, we had a call with uh, uh, Mr. Jackson and the regulatory key, the team with, uh, with the Joint Commission. It is called the intracycle uh, sort of meeting uh, for the Joint Commission. It was a good conversation. Uh, we had some discussion about uh, ligature risk and uh, some of the challenges that we have been facing in terms of getting uh, or changing all the ligature risk in uh, in uh, in our facility, especially John George, uh, related to supply chain delay and ordering delays, 
but uh, we continue uh, taking all uh, the necessary steps to ensure the safety of uh, of our patients. So that's all I have about regulatory. I want to make sure that if you have any question, uh, I can answer it. Then we can talk very briefly about safety as well. Trustees, any questions to Dr. Jamaluddin about uh, regulatory affairs? All right, Dr. Jay, talk to us about uh, patient safety. So uh, we are reporting for month of May, and it was really an incredible month. We didn't have any uh, sort of uh, harm uh, reported uh, to the patient for that month. We had some other uh, uh, reports uh, in June and July, uh, uh, but we have we have addressed them. But I know last time uh, the culture of safety survey. Uh, we had some question related to the culture of safety survey that is ongoing. So I have uh, Ms. Graval, maybe she can talk uh, uh, for a couple of minutes just how this is progressing from her perspective and share where we are with this with the board. Darshan, are you on? Yes, I am. Thank you, Dr. Jamaluddin. I'm going to just share my screen. Um, if, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Jamaluddin, I will. Sure. Thank you. Darshan, just a few minutes, if that would be okay. Please. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we are really in the thick of debriefing our our results with our frontline staff. Um, the results were released um, in mid-May to all of the operational leaders across our system. And um, between May and mid-June, the operational leaders were... Uh, requested to share the results and socialize the results, but a neutral facilitator would be scheduled to conduct debriefings with frontline staff only. And that's with in the absence of their immediate manager or leader. Um, so we are wrapping up this week uh, all of our debriefings across um, AHS it's been um, it's been a very fruitful um, uh, exercise because we have gleaned a great deal of insight from our frontline staff of the things that are working and are not working for them, and some of also the sense of anxiety and um, uh, uh, unanticipated awareness of what the future of the organization is just because of all the changes that have happened. So it's really provided us um, an opportunity to, to meet with frontline staff across our system. Our next goal is for the month of August to have each of the operational leaders work with their frontline staff to develop action plans to address either teamwork or safety climate. As an organization, those were the two lowest scoring domains across our system, and yet those are the two domains that actually drive a culture of safety. They have the most influence of the nine domains that were part of the survey. So we have a lot of work to do, um, but I think the first step is being aware of where our vulnerabilities lie, letting our staff know that they've been heard and having our leaders work hand in hand with their frontline teams to address those things that have historically either not been addressed or um, really just hit leading it and, and, and making the change happen. Um, so that is actually sort of our plan in a nutshell. Um, and we are going to be looking at implementing a just culture 
um, policy and procedure for the staff. I know our physician group um, has one in place, but we also want to make that in alignment with all of the other staff at AHS um, towards the end of this year so that we are all in align. Thank you, Dr. Sean, for uh, Ms. Graywell for that presentation. So with that, I think, uh, Dr. Jamaluddin, I think that closes out this report. Yes, uh, I'd, li I'd like just to uh, say uh, something about a topic uh, that is important to me uh, since this is my last meeting. And I think uh, this is something that Mr. Jackson has brought to the ELT team, and I like to say to this board, and that is related to misinformation. I think, uh, I think our organization should address uh, the issue of misinformation because it is really a very, very uh, big threat, you know, to it is spread to, to our, uh, you know, uh, way of thinking. It's, it's a threat to our uh, reason, our reality. There is a lot of misinformation that is happening, uh, you know, in the social media. It's affecting people. Uh, confidence in, uh, in various things in the vaccine we are seeing it now and so I, I, I really um, I really think uh, Mr. Jackson I, I, I really support you addressing this and see what can be done for misinformation I think this board has driven uh, a really very important message with respect to health equity and uh, and social equity but I think the issue of misinformation is is a big threat and I think we have to think about it we have to think how we are going to handle it in healthcare as well that's all I want to say and thank you thank you Dr. Jamaluddin with that we will close out item D and Yes, it took us a while, but we come to our feature presentation. <laughs> this is, uh, 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 to remind the audience, this is a recurring uh, agenda item, quality improvement projects, uh, and uh, it's finally ready for prime time. Everyone's been talking about it for quite some time. This is a transfer center transformation report, and there are two, um, two presenters here. One is Mr. Ryan DeGive. He is the director of our system admission and transfer center, and uh, He's relatively new to the organization, so we're going to welcome Mr. DeGive. And then, of course, we have Dr. Bernice Perez, who uh, is not new to the system. She's been a long-standing emergency room physician here. She is a champion for the Transfer Center. And as an FYI, she is the newly appointed uh, uh, chair of the EBMG board. So we welcome the both of you for this uh, kind of anticipated report. Um, about 20 minutes have usually been allocated, but this is an important one, so take what you need. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for that um, kind introduction. Excited to be ahead and share my screen. Is everyone able to see okay? We can see it, right? Yes. So, um, as mentioned, I'm relatively new. I've been here almost a year. Um, got a few more weeks left before I hit that mark. Um, when I started here last August, uh, the transfer center had been live um, for about 10 months. Um, previously, it was under the care management team who 
facilitated uh, transfers out of the Highland DD. Um, with the Epic Go Live, there was a change in structure and the way that they wanted to um, work with patient flow. So they created a different department um, called the System Admission Transfer Center, which combined transfer center staff, uh, bed control, and um, patient transport. Um, since I've been here, it's grown to include uh, the staffing office as well. Um, when I started, uh, one of the first things I did was I got to meet um, with all the physician leaders and the EDs, um, medicine teams all across the system, um, just to kind of hear what they were hoping to get out of the transfer center, what, um, what were the barriers that they were seeing, what were some of the things that were kind of going right that they wanted to see more of. Um, and quickly, Dr. Perez and I partnered. Um, she's been a huge physician advocate for us uh, just to take a look to see what, you know, the transfer center should be, um, what we wanted to see it become, and what was kind of standing in our way. And I just want to say that we saw this as a huge potential. Um, as many of you know, the Highland ED is often very, very busy. Um, and we saw this as a huge potential to transfer some of the patients um, to San Leandro and Alameda Hospital to um, help with that burden. That was the initial objective, but we um, expanded from there. Yeah, we definitely took a look at um, you know, some of the immediate concerns that were expressed. Uh, primarily trying to get more patients out of the Highland DD. Um, There's also uh, hope from San Leandro and Alameda hospitals that they could increase their census volume um, by taking some of these patients that Highland was uh, having trouble finding beds for that were sitting in RED um, here at Highland. So that was one of the things we looked at. Um, we also looked at uh, the length of time it took to get patients from our sister hospitals, um, San Leandro and Alameda, to Highland when higher level of care was needed. Um, these were some of the big issues that uh, were definitely prevalent um, in my initial meetings. And I know those are still issues that uh, continue to pop up from time to time. So they're definitely things that we keep an eye on. Um, so we have expanded our staff um, quite a bit over the past uh, year. Um, when I started, there was only two uh, official transfer center coordinators, one full-time, um, one uh, per diem. Um, we've added a couple per diems, and we have, um, we're lucky enough to have two cross-trained uh, ED nurses here at Highlands who help out quite a bit. Um, we bring that perspective of you know, what the ED at Highland goes through, as well as what you know nurses all around go through. Um, on the units at AHS, and they really help advocate for patients as well as, you know, trying to keep um, keep patient flow going. So when we're looking at, you know, the different things that were not, um, kind of broke it out a little bit further to see where we could um, where we could improve. One of the biggest things that was apparent was. Um, kind of the reactive uh, process that was going on, a push versus pull philosophy with uh, patient flow. Um, when Highland was impacted- Hey Ryan, can you give us an audio check? We're having some mic issues with you. Sure, you able to hear me? Yeah, that's good, that's good. Okay, sorry, it's my microphone on this laptop. Yeah, don't crick your neck. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, definitely a push versus pull philosophy. Um, 
when Highland was at a surge red, we were trying to get every patient we possibly could out. Um, when there was beds at Highland, there wasn't a lot of um, candidates being um, offered up and there was multiple reasons for that. So what ended up happening was um, Highland would be okay for a few days and then they would be impacted again. Meanwhile, San Leandro and uh, Alameda were um, wanting to take patients, uh, providing beds, um, staffing up, and then they ended up having to cancel nurses and were unable to take patients. Um, another thing that we looked at was uh, utilization of the transfer center. Um, whether they were looped in at the beginning, looped in through the entire process, or even looped in at all. Um, there were times where um, the transfer center wasn't even called for a transfer, uh, especially for ED to ED transfers. Um, they were kind of going around the transfer center or um, initially the transfer center just was not handling them. Um, so that was kind of causing some uh, further impaction at Highland ED. Um, there was definitely communication breakdowns. Um, you know, each, each hospital is its own entity and um, they're trying to do the best they can for, you know, the patients that they have there. And there wasn't a centralized uh, location where everyone could kind of be on the same page. And somebody was looking at the, you know, 20,000 foot view of what was going on to try and um, keep things balanced for everyone. This very much created this very disorganized way that we dealt with patient transfers where, you know, um, people just reacted. So if we had a patient at San Leonardo Alameda it was, and they needed high level of care, immediate thought, oh, they could go to the Highland ED. Um, and so things like, you know, wondering whether there were inpatient beds at Highland to take those patients weren't thought about. So um, part of our whole goal was to sort of just coordinate um, the way patients are transferred um, between all three hospitals. Definitely. Um, some of the common themes we saw, um, not just with the previous um, item that we looked at, but other items we were looking at was there's a lot of lack of standard work, um, not just necessarily with transfer center staff, but um, just all around. There wasn't you know consistent participation of the transfer center, whether it was um, they just weren't helping with certain things or they were never looped into anything. Um, identifying the you know, best candidates to transfer, uh, looking at criteria, um, keeping transfer in the forefront of um, you know, ED uh, physician's mind and the ED charge nurse's mind. Um, direct uh, transfers to inpatient beds versus Highland ED. Um, since the transfer center wasn't really involved with um, Alameda and San Leandro ED transfers, uh, they were kind of just going directly to Highland ED, which was just further impacting them. Um, not taking a look at other options, you know, could we go directly to the floor bed is this patient at San Leandro stable enough um, and could go to Alameda for care that they needed? Um, just taking a you know, broader look at what resources we have. Um, and another thing, of course, was utilizing patient beds at San Leandro and Alameda. Um, we talked to Dr. Youssef several times, Dr. Abzali, um, you know, definitely want patients. Want to make sure that we're um, filling those beds up, that they um, can care for the patients there while also opening up beds here at Highland to ensure that we're caring for the most appropriate patients here as well. So one of the first things I did was I'm kind of a data nerd at heart. So I pulled a lot of data out of Epic. Um, taking a look at, you know, where things were from 
the time the transfer center was created in October 2019 to uh, when I started in August. Um, Take a look to see what the overall volumes were, um, how many were completed, uh, and just basically what type of cases were actually being transferred out. And a lot of it was um, transfers out of Highland DB mainly. Um, well, we also support uh, transfers out to CPMC for our GI partners, um, as well as um, to Summit for our uh, cardiac cases. So that was mostly all I was seeing in terms of what type of requests we were getting. Um, there was a high amount of canceled requests. Um, one of the things that I found was that these were requests that came in after hours, maybe when the transfer center wasn't open. Um, and since nobody followed up on them, the patients ended up being admitted to Highland. So they were simply canceled out. Um, there may have been you know, beds available at Alameda and San Leandro during the morning time, but since we didn't have any um, transfer candidates to send them, they didn't have the capacity of staff to be able to take them. Um, there's also a small change in some of the patient's conditions, which kind of was more speaking to the uh, acuity of the patients we were looking at initially to transfer out of Highland to, um, to our sister hospitals. So one of the biggest workflows that Dr. Perez and I um, and working on was the ED to ED transfers, getting the transfer center involved with patients in San Leandro ED and Alameda ED that needed to come to Highland. They needed higher level of care. They needed only the specialty care that Highland could provide. Um, how do we best um, you know, care for the patient, get them to where they need to go, while also keeping um, everything moving at Highland itself? So we came up with um, different buckets. Is Highland that served red? Um, would this be a particular patient that we would want to transfer to an outside hospital versus waiting for a bed at Highlands? Um, is there an inpatient bed ready at Highlands? Should we just transfer them directly into there? Um, and of course, if this is you know something that's immediate, a life-threatening condition, we didn't want that patient to have to wait. You know, the transfer center would connect them immediately with the Highland DB doc, and they would be sent over um, without delay. And this seems so intuitive now, but at the time it really wasn't. You know, everybody was just sort of getting shuttled over to the Highland ED. So it was really important to be able to sort people um, and to really be able to ask, can somebody go to an inpatient bed? Yes, let's send that person to an inpatient bed. Is there room at the Highland ED? Are they in surge red? And if they are, let's try to get them to an outside hospital they can take care of them. Um, and so it was really important to be able to do that sorting and uh, create that workflow. Uh, uh, Dr. Perez, can I take a few moments? I see a trustee's hand up yeah. that I didn't see before. Trustee Banerjee, I hope you haven't been waiting too long. Uh, please. Not at all. This is this is a good time. I wanted to know that just because it's transfer, it does indicate that you're looking at like intra-inter uh, facility transfer, but given the level of detail and um, and granularity that you know about that is there any um is there any coordination with like the county like the the external facing um uh you know coming to the work the ems or county ems that don't get somebody to highland if the our beds are full can you i know there was an ed kind of a pilot that was happening at one time where they'd look at uh, you know, what the volumes and what the um, throughput and, and like what the wait times were, but also if we wanted to, you know, have 
uh, EMS bring folks into our system, bring folks into bring patients into San Leandro or uh, you know Alameda Hospital, depending on uh, so that th that could be better managed. Where where from the field that they were coming into our system is that is that something you coordinate? That's an excellent question. I don't think it's something that the transfer center was involved with, but I, I do know that they have a system where they can see um, what transfers are going to different EVs. I think there's like a ReadyNet system, but I don't know much about it. It's not my expertise, but it's an excellent question. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Perez and Mr. DeGive, we're at uh, 14 minutes in the presentation. Can we put about an eight to 10 minute time check on this? Yes. And and actually, so it's going to go longer. Trustee Jensen is waving at me. I see. Trustee Jensen, question, please. Yes, thank you. Um, my question is similar, I think, to Trustee Banerjee's question. It, I, I wonder, um, it, and it's not something that you're doing now, so maybe it's more of a suggestion for the transfer center, which is a, a trip. I, I, I really appreciate the um, the way that you've looked at the, the issues and the problems not just decided, oh, we're going to establish this center and start doing transfers. I appreciate, um, Ryan, the way that you've identified the issues in the, in the background and the, the barriers first, and, and I think those are all definitely true from what we've heard. But um, kind of it related, though, is with regard to, to um, your point earlier and the point that we heard from um, from uh, Ms. Perez as well, that if these um, everyone is coming to the Highland ED either on foot or through um, transport. Perhaps, especially with the transport, it would be an opportunity before the transport calls Highland ED to say, oh, no, take them to San Leandro or take them to Alameda, depending on where the, the paramedic or the ambulance or whatever the transport is. Is that something that's been discussed at all? That is not something that we have discussed. Um, I'm not sure. I can definitely reach out to our partners um, in the community about that. I don't know what their legal process is for that. I know that if it depends on the severity of the patient, um, they will normally take the patient to the most immediate uh, facility that they can. Um, so a lot of times, especially if it's a trauma, they'll end up at Highland. Um, and a lot of times Highland DD will end up getting a lot of walk-in patients that come in as well um, from the community. Of course, and, and I, that's something that I, I wasn't actually considering, but of course, and of course um, your point is well taken about the, um, the ambulance or the, the transport would, if they were planning to come to Highland, you're not gonna tell them don't come here. So, um, that's a good point, but maybe it's more about outreach then. Maybe it's more about outreach to those um, those those transporters, the ambulances and the um, the emergency providers that come that bring patients to to Highland to say, if, you know, if you're picking up a patient in Mid Alameda County, consider taking them to San Leandro Hospital. Or if you're picking up a patient in Chinatown, you know, it might be just as close to go to Alameda Hospital depending on the severity, and um, there's more there are bits available there. So that's just a comment. Thank you very much for the presentation. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Please keep going, gang. Um, so one of the biggest things was um, a standard work for the staff. Um, 
one of the comments that Dr. Joshi initially had made um, when I met with her was checking in more with Alameda um, ED and Alameda um, charge nurses and Alameda house suits, um, same with San Leandro, uh, getting his, you know, chance to see how they were doing, if there's anything the transfer center could help out with them. But at the same time, you know, getting a sense of what type of beds they were going to have open. Um, so one of the first things that the transfer center does is they will make those calls to uh, the house soup and the charge nurse and the EDs at our sister facilities, um, just to see how everything's going, get a sense of what beds are going to be available throughout the day. Uh, they'll then check in with the house soup at Highland um, and with the ED charge and the ED resident at Highland ED, um, just to give them a report on what beds they have to work with. And, you know, is there any patients that meet, you know, tele criteria for Alameda or med search criteria for San Leandro? Um, and it kind of gets, you know, that collaborative spirit going of, okay, let's find some patients that we can send. Um, that's definitely helped uh, help begin the day a little bit quicker than what normally would happen. Would you like to speak about this slide? Yeah, it's just some of, and I know we're pressed for time, but this is just some of the stuff that we've done, sort of trying to um, coordinate the, the transfers a little bit better. Um, you know, ophthalmology is not available over at San Leonardo and Alameda, so just trying to figure out who actually needs to come over to Highland versus who can follow up um, maybe at the same day in their clinic or who can just follow up later as an outpatient. Um, we also came up with um, a plan for interfacility uh, neurology transfers so that stroke patients um, who present to San Leon and Alameda um, can go to um, Alameda um, if they don't need an inpatient neurology consult. Um, and then patients who need inpatient neurology consult, only those would come to Highland. Um, and then if patient needs interventional neurology, then they would be transferred to Eden. Um, so we're just sort of sorting uh, patients out and, and making sure they get the appropriate care at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, and if we can probably go ahead. Well. Yeah. go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, that kind of ties into this slide as well. There's um, a project that we're currently working on with the STAR team who's um, helping us take a look at how long it takes to get inpatients at San Leandro and Alameda to inpatient beds here at Highland. Um, trying to improve that process um, to get their swap patients out, to help move downgrades down through Highland, to open up those ICU beds, um, just trying to proactively um, ensure we can take those patients right away so that we're not running into issues like was discussed earlier where Dr. Jamal Dean had to call Teresa Cooper um, late at night to try and get a transfer push through, um, coming up with different ways that we can keep those beds um, flowing and open so that we can take patients quicker. So one of the things that's changed um, since implementing all of this, um, working more closely with staff, uh, the addition of Alameda and San Leandro transfers has, of course, increased our volumes um, in terms of requests and incompletions. Uh, we've also been able to really reduce our cancellations. Um, this is in part because there's clear transfer criteria. Um, there's also, like I said, more of a proactive and collaborative approach with um, our physician partners and nursing partners, um, taking a look at which patients would be the best candidates and moving forward as quickly as possible to get those patients um, accepted and transferred. 
So that's played a big role in um, our numbers changing. Um, some of the metrics we've changed uh, or taken a look at more closely. Uh, on average, our monthly request volume has gone up by about 9% over the past 11 months. Um, our overall request completion has also gone up, but the rate itself has also increased as well. So we're able to um, complete requests at about 10% more than we were a year ago at this time. Um, so our, like I said, our cancellations have come down. Um, our direct to Highland EB transfers um, all around have gone down by about 4% um, compared to what they were before. So these are patients that are going to um, inpatient beds at Highland versus going to the EB or transferring between Alameda and San Leandro instead of coming to Highland if they're appropriate. Um, or even if we need to send them out to some of our um, uh, partner locations throughout the Bay Area to uh, Summit or Eden or Stanford or UCSF if needed um, upon the care they need. Uh, we've also been able to decrease the um, overall average time for higher level care transfers by about 12%. Um, in some cases, it's gone as high as 25% depending upon what the, the, um, where the transfer is coming from and what type of transfer it was, but on average, it's about 12% that we've been able to decrease it. And so one of the biggest things with you know a lot of change is making sure that you continue to control it and make sure that it stays um, implemented. So we have continued to meet on a monthly basis with our transfer council where you know, we talk about the different uh, projects that we're working on, get ideas of, you know, where physician leaders and nursing leaders would like to see us focus more on to, you know, make things better for the transfer process. Uh, we review specific cases, whether they were through the transfer center or just transfer cases in general that did not go right and, you know, take a look as a group to see how that could have been better. Um, we've also done weekly meetings where Dr. Perez and I check in once a week um, discuss some of the projects we're working on, make sure that we're on the same page, um, discuss any issues that, you know, the transfer center or physician nursing has come across. Um, we also meet with um, physicians from across the system are invited to that meeting as well. Um, sometimes as, you know, regular guests, sometimes as special guests depending on the, um, the issue at hand that they want to discuss. Presentation. Thank you for both of you presenting. Trustees, questions of the transfer center on the transfer center presentation. Trustee Jensen. Thank you, Dr. Chair. I um, wanted to ask about the the hours, and you may have touched, you may have gone over this already. But what hours are, are the the transfer coordinators available? Yeah, they're available from 10 a.m. to 6:30 p.m. Uh, Every day of the week. 10 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. Um, every day? Every day. Um, okay. I would, I would love to see that increase. I know Mark mentioned that earlier, so it made me smile. Yeah, no, and that um, is kind of, I wonder, you know, if, if you've looked, I'm sure you have, and maybe you can't report it here, but if you've looked at which uh, are there, the difference between um, code reds and other issues and patients who are not able to be put into a, a bed, when the transfer center is open versus when it's closed. Yes, yeah, so I've um, taken a look at a lot of the requests that come in after hours, um, just to see if there was something that if we were there, um, 
you know, later on in the day or earlier in the day, would it help? Um, there is some evidence to make the case to stay a little bit later. Um, sometimes some of our coordinators will um, will work right up until the transfer center closes, um, just to make sure that they're seeing the transfer through. Um, and they could probably easily get a couple more transfers done if they're available. So then that would be uh, an issue for James and, and Mark to determine if that was, because uh, it does seem that the transfer center is having an impact and as, um, as our chair has pointed out, our, our, our numbers, um, ED to bed have been improving at, at all of our sites. And so, um, you know, if we could think about the, how much more we could improve if we had uh, around the clock transfer center, just something to think about. Thanks for your, Great report. Yeah, I, I would jump in on that and thank you for that great report. I know our division of gastroenterology is probably one of the highest utilizers of the transfer center. And I, I uh, watching the, the vector of improvement has very, has very much been impressive. So we appreciate that. My last question is, uh, this is important work and an important direction you're going. What is your messaging and communication plan to those who may not know be aware of all this progress? That's a very good question. Um, we definitely share it within um, within our department's uh, monthly transfer council. Uh, we go over the, the different metrics that we've been looking at. Um, there's a lot of times that there'll be questions that come up from that as well, like why did we for this case or why weren't we able to um, get these other two patients over? So it's been a good conversation at the transfer council to take a closer look at some of our processes to see if they're um, they're making more of an impact. Uh, I'll, I'll just note that you have three med staff leaders, Dr. Besh, Dr. Pyun, and Dr. Afzali in the room. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it to the three of you to be aware of this presentation and maybe perhaps consider choosing the format to disseminate this good work to your, to your respective medical staffs. Um, I don't see any further hands up. Uh, actually, Trustee Jensen, your hand is still up. You got another one? Okay. With that, I just thank, forgot to put my hand down, sorry. <laughs> thank you for very much for that uh, that report. We look forward to hearing more on the success of this really, really important uh, um, uh, component of our organization. So with that, we'll close out item E. Uh, we'll go to item F, planning calendar and issue tracking. Uh, just to remember, we've, we've previously, Trustee Esteem previously asked for a follow-up on nursing education. I think that one's still... Uh, finding its cadence, and so we'll put that on our tracking calendar. Throughput has been a discussion. I think Trustee Jensen requested that one. This is part of that throughput discussion, but I'm, I'm putting that in public comment to follow up. And just as a reminder, uh, the, uh, all the board committees are, are dark in August except this one. So thank you for being on this committee. We will, we will meet again in August in the fourth uh, week of, uh, the, of the month. With that, we'll close out item F. Audience, we're gonna go into closed session. It is my hope that closed session will probably be around 15 minutes. Uh, it is my hope. Um, and then uh, we'll just come back and report to you. It's probably not terribly worth waiting for, but if you're here, I'm happy to see you. So with that, we are going to go into closed session. Uh, council. The quality committee is now going into closed session to consider those items as stated on the agenda. Good evening, everyone.